Welcome to AACS Today, the official podcast of the American Association of Christian Schools. Thank you for joining us on this episode of AACS Today. It is so nice to have you listening with us. And uh, today we are excited to welcome uh, Jamison Coppola. We're going to introduce him. Of course, he's the man that needs no introduction. Uh, excited to have him back on the podcast. But I want to remind you about a couple of a th- couple things. Uh, don't forget, we've got summer professional development coming up very shortly. We have some starting the first week of June. We've added some classes recently, so I want to make sure that you are um, aware of those and that you're thinking about and preparing to sign up for those and then moving into June and even have a course even into July. But it's great to have you again. Matt Tisk is here, Regional Director for the Mid-South AACS, and joining us once again, your favorite co-host and mine, our Legislative Director, Mr. Jamison Coppola. Jamison, welcome back to AACS Today podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. You sound awfully excited for a Monday. Man, I love Mondays. It's the... It's the well, it's not really the beginning of the week. We all know Sunday is the beginning of the week, mm, the first indeed. day, but it's the beginning of the work week, and we have things to tackle and to take care of. And especially on this podcast, Jameson, you know, we've done uh, a lot of work. Your office has done a lot of work keeping our um, schools uh, made aware of what's happening in DC. And so we have some updates that we want to share uh, about some of the things that are happening with the the PPP program. So. Uh, Let's jump in, Jameson, and talk about what are some things that we want to uh, share. First of all, we are learning about what's called safe harbor guidance. It has to do with question number 46 on the SBA FAQ. I guess if that's the right term, please correct me. But uh, tell us what we need to know about this good faith certification. Yeah, it was a bit of guidance that came down uh, last week that was really helpful regarding the question of um, a a good faith uh, statement that your organization was in need of the funds in order to maintain operations. I think the last time we spoke, we talked about the fact that there were some organizations, uh, notably Harvard and uh, Shake Shack, I think were two of the, the high high name profile organizations that were mentioned that had taken part in the Paycheck Protection Program through the Small Business Administration and were called out because they seemed to have plenty of resources in order to weather the COVID storm. Well, that turned into some pretty strong statements from the administration and officials saying, listen, if you don't really need this money, you better not take it. Uh, we're going to come after you is, a, is the takeaway most people had. <laughs> And what it did, it had a chilling effect on borrowing. So here this program was created to keep people employed for the duration of this crisis. You and I talked, Matt, about how it was, uh, it's something akin to eminent domain. The the government's requiring that we stay home. Um, In in legal terms, you might call that a taking. So they've taken something of value, and that's all of our ability to earn a living. And in order to remedy that, they've passed the Paycheck Protection Program, which does two things. It keeps people attached to their employers so that at the end of this crisis, we can hit the ground running. People don't have to be rehired. They're already attached to an employer that is ready to gear up again and, and provide the goods or services that they provide in society. And, and so it has two parts. It keeps 
uh, businesses open so that they can continue to employ people and provide goods and services. And it keeps people being paid because the government's told them to stay home. Well, when the, the organizations that borrowed the money that maybe had sufficient resources not to borrow it, and the statements were made by the administration, had a chilling effect on borrowing. And so many organizations said, whoa, we're not sure how um, the government will second-guess our good faith certification right. concerning our necessity, the need for us to have this money. And so um, I think it was late last week, <clears throat> maybe Wednesday or Thursday, mid to late, uh, this new question 46 was released by the Small Business Administration. Essentially what it does is it says if a borrower uh, borrows less than $2 million, it has that kind of threshold. Um, again, smaller businesses um, will consider any borrower that has less than $2 million in loans um, we, we will deem them to have the required certification concerning the necessity of the loan requested in good faith. So what they've done is they said, if your payroll is on the order of such that it's less than $2 million for eight weeks, then we will deem you to uh, ha not have additional resources um, that could have been used in order to survive the storm. Don't be worried. Go ahead and take part. Uh, I think we, potentially mentioned this last time we were together, but over half, which I think was on the order of close to $140, $150 million, billion dollars, sorry. Again, in DC, you gotta gotta be careful about your millions and billions. Yeah, just just a little letter. <laughs> M versus B, yeah. no big deal. You're not talking about real money until you get to billions. <laughs> millions is like change you find in the couch in DC. Um, but there was 150 or, or just under billion dollars at the beginning of last week that still had not been claimed on the second plus up. And it was because of people's hesitancy. In fact, you know, attached to that is there was a date. They, they said, listen, if you're worried that you don't have a good faith certification that you need this money, you can return it to us by May 8th. I'm sorry, May 14th. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all good. We won't come looking to see if you really did meet the criteria or right. not. And they extended that to May 18th, which is today. And so borrowers could um, have that extension to make their decision. So what I think will happen is people that had kind of put the brakes on, whether or not they were going to use the money or even ask for the money, now can have a sense of relief. They, they, they can anticipate properly what the federal government's reaction will be to that good faith certification. Do you think it's safe to assume that most of our schools have less than a $2 million payroll over eight weeks, Jameson? <laughs> I think it is. I think it is, yes. Um, I, if some of them had more than $2 million, I want to know those ministries. I want, <laughs> yeah, we I could talk about that. needing donations for YLTC right. yeah, or some yeah. other things coming up. Uh, we could send them some of our fundraising letters, I believe. Coming up too. So, well, that's good. In that all seriousness, yeah. yeah. In all seriousness, we, our schools operate on such tight budgets. Yeah. Here, let me give you an anecdotal thought about it. Um, we were on a, a private school choice call, which we participate in. I think it's uh, every other week. And, you know, it's a little bit of a, a, a hard meeting because one of the topics of discussion was all the private schools that are facing closure. In fact, uh, I think Cato Institute has started a list of permanent closures as a result of COVID. I checked it this morning, and, and there's upwards of 30 schools on it. 
uh, private uh, schools, many of them religious. And so there's a real need in private education um, for for dollars. I mean, we, we operate on the slimmest of budgets, the tightest of margins, um, in order to continue to offer a choice to families for the education of their children and, and for us, for the mission, the ministry of nurturing young people in the um, in the in the the theology and the doctrines and the beliefs we hold sacred about God's word and, and his, his being. Yes. And it's, I mean, just to demonstrate it, that even more, I was having a conversation with the school leader right before uh, we got on to record this. And uh, she was describing how um, she's not taking a paycheck right now. Others on her staff aren't voluntarily because they're looking at the summer going, uh, I don't know how this is going to work. So there, there are folks out there making real sacrifices. I know we've already had one school in our region uh, announce that they're closing uh, next year. So uh, these, these, these are real things that our schools are wrestling with and needing to consider and uh, and really think about. So this was this was at least good to hear that there's this. You know, if it's under two million dollars, we're going to assume that it was a that that the loan was applied for in good faith. So, Jamison, that provides a good transition for us. Um, there's been a, a letter that's come out of the school choice uh, community here recently uh, dealing with uh, equitable services. You know, there's been some back and forth about the private school community having access, equitable access to some of the funds that have been made available. And there's, there's been a little pushback from, uh, from some of our counterparts, counterparts in public education about uh, the funds and even talk about not including private schools in some of these funds. So a letter went out recently kind of tackling some of these issues because the economic impact of uh, private schools closing on a, on a large scale has a big impact on the economy. Talk to us about the letter and some of that impact. Yeah, so there, you know, we've talked about the Paycheck Protection Program a lot, and I think that probably was one of the main programs designed to help um, businesses and nonprofits weather the COVID storm. But uh, a parallel track of funding came through the Department of Ed, and that was um, some emergency funds that went directly to governors so that they could shore up education within their state. And then there was additional money that was going to be allocated to states uh, through the formulas that are part of the Every Student Succeeds Act. And that money also is supposed to be shared on the basis of, of equitable participation for private schools. Now, there's because it's federal money that then goes down to state education officials, local education authorities, LEAs, there has been some reports of private schools being shut out of that. And so just as a reminder for our folks, if you're hearing about um, those local education authorities not allowing private school participation, you should know that that's not the intent of the CARES Act. The CARES Act intends to have that money shared equitably with the private school community. And so they should talk to their LEAs if they don't get um, the correct answers or helpful answers. They can go to the ombudsman that every state now has whose job it is to sort out whether or not the local education authority is indeed sharing those funds equitably. 
But another part of that is we're looking ahead. So those are the two pieces that are passed, the Paycheck Protection Program and the emergency funds to governors as well as uh, money that can be shared through equitable services. And and looking ahead, you've already seen that the Democrats passed a very large uh, bill um, trying to have an answer for the economic pressures of the COVID response. So what we've done is we've joined a, a fairly substantial, broad-based letter um, from multiple organizations. I think the last time I looked, there was uh, upwards of 30 organizations listed on a letter asking that the next round of funding provide for um, things that will help with school choice. And so uh, there's some um, ask that if there's equitable services, that it be clear that those are to be shared for um, both public and private school students. Uh, there's some tax policy asks uh, like a temporary education credit, you know, to provide families with a 50% tax credit on their private school tuition for the next two years, uh, a temporary charitable deduction um, to allow uh, parents, uh, again, we talk about these things above the line and below the line. This would be an above the line tax credit to deduct your tuition payments from your federal uh, income taxes. Um I'm sorry, your um, your charitable deductions, um, and to make your tuition payment considered a charitable deduction, um, and, and so things like that, an expansion of 529 accounts. There's even some asks for uh, micro grants and ESAs or education savings accounts, um, supported by federal dollars so that students can have a choice. And I think this is really important, not just for making sure that private schools uh, can serve the needs of their students, but it's also important for public schools. And this is why, you know, when you look at the numbers, if private school students don't have a private school to go to in the fall, uh, th the numbers of private school students switching to a public school Huge would impacts. overwhelm. Sure. Yeah, it would overwhelm yeah. the public school system. There's not enough money in the public school systems no. to provide for all the private school students. So we've got so this, we've got about what, like six million students approximately in private schools across uh, across the country. So let's just imagine that a percentage of those all of the sudden end up in the public school system. The impact of that financially on those state budgets is just, uh, it's, it's hard yeah, to we're, fathom. We're back to the billions of dollars right. worth of um, extra money that would have to be allocated for education in the states. Rough numbers, there's about 10% of the student population in the United States that either is private school or homeschool. Right. Of the private school students, 76% of those students are, no, I'm sorry, about 75% of those students are in religiously motivated schools. Right. And about 76% of all private schools themselves are religiously motivated. If you're talking about just 10% or 20%, that's all it would take. So 10% of 10% essentially is what we're saying, or 20% of 10% of, of the total number of private school students. If they were to switch from private schools to public schools, it would overwhelm the system. So it wouldn't wouldn't have to take 
um, more than that, 10 or 20% of those students going into the public system would overwhelm the budgets. Yeah. And so the things we're asking for in this letter or that the school choice group are, are just good common sense things that, that will certainly benefit private schools, but also uh, benefit our entire system of education, you know, and quite frankly, yeah, it's not self-serving. I, I think right. that's the most important thing. We're not just making a special pleading to try to save private education. We're saying, listen, education's important. It's a national priority. Private schools are an essential part of the education system. In order to preserve education, private school students and private schools have to be a consideration in any future spending bill. Yeah. And quite frankly, we, um, some of the leadership in, in, in both houses is probably not too friendly to private schools. We won't name any names per se, uh, but we know that we know that to be the case as private schools have been removed or attempted to be removed from some you know key pieces of legislation uh, over the last several months and so yeah, uh, somehow over our history the idea that every student deserves a basic education so that they can live out their god-given potential and that's really the foundation of public education it was how do we preserve liberty and how do we let each person realize the equality they have under god Part of that calculation, even in the founder's mindset, was some form of publicly funded education. What that has turned into culturally in our country, though, is is one bit of education gets funded, and that's public education. Right. So that's seen as, you know, you can't be against public education unless you're, um, you know, it's like being against mothers and apple pie. Um, but baseball, don't forget baseball (laughs) and baseball. That's right. Nothing's as simplistic as that because, you know, the, the cultural picture now and the political picture is sullied by all the money and the Mm. teachers unions and other things, but there still is something fundamentally, it seems, um, romantic, if you will, you know, um, in, in the broadest sense of that word about public free education, public education. So we're not making a special pleading. We're saying, listen, for the good of the country and for the good of students, in education, the private school student and the private school community has to be considered in future funding yeah. um, for education. The, the cost, if 20% of private school students reabsorbed into the public system, the estimate of that is about $15 billion, uh, which is just uh, that's yeah, a lot of money. Local districts wouldn't be able to absorb it. The no. states wouldn't be able to absorb it without raising taxes or diverting money from other things. Right. And well, you're talking about probably temporary classrooms or, you know, rehabbing old buildings, you know, because you got to have kids in seats and things like that. So yeah. it would be expensive proposition. So it's not a special pleading. It is don't forget about this portion of the population that's educated in private schools. They, they shouldn't be invisible to policymakers. Yeah, for sure. Well, to, to transition, you were kind of talking about some foundational pieces we, we had uh, to our country. We had some religious liberty guidance uh, come out recently uh, from the Department of Labor, uh, which which these are these are positive things that we're seeing coming out of uh, our government. Um, isn't always that way. It may not always be that way in the future, but it's encouraging when we see some things like this happen. So tell us a little bit about some of the guidance that was released uh, from the Department of Labor. Yeah, I think this falls under the headline of in in our country, you don't just elect a president. I know he is the the top of the billing. That's the name that everybody associates with an election. But you have down ballot positions that are really important. Matt, by the way, 
congratulations. I heard that you are now city councilman, Matt. That is very true. Yes, I was elected to serve on uh, my city council here locally. So it's exciting. Well, Good opportunity. That well, thank is you. exciting. And it's and congratulations, sincerely. Um, but, but those elections matter. Your election matters. Uh, you serving in government matters. And so when you go to the voting booth, you elect all of the people on the ballot, right? The top, the top line, whoever's going to be serving as president. But then every line below that's important. And then kind of hidden behind all of that are the, the, the number of executive and administrative positions that those people are directly responsible for hiring. And, you know, so way back in uh, May 9th, on May 9th of 2017, President Trump signed an executive order. It was Executive Order uh, 13798. And it instructed every single department to go through their regulations to look for ways that religious liberty could be improved. Because over the years, religious liberty has been certainly diminished mm. and and the ability of religious people that really believe what they say they believe, right. their ability to act in the public square, their ability to take part in public programs, their ability to continue to live authentically with what they believe and still be part of uh, the programs that every other American have access to, regardless of their religious belief. Mm -hmm. those, those religious people were kept out. So the president, in trying to remedy that, gave this executive order. It, was, it also gave the attorney general instructions to, to give guidance to all the other departments, which um, that was completed on October 6, 2017. So th these are things that happened <clears throat> two and a half, three years ago that are now just still reaping fruit in this administration. So the Department of Labor just issued guidance uh, today, in fact, I think, uh, this morning that again, goes through and says, listen, our, our job is to keep people laboring. <laughs> That's what the Department of Labor is for. Hey, listen, we're, we're people that believe in the virtue and the value of hard work. And there so we go. have a department <laughs> whose job it is. Now, they are not always good at this, but, <laughs> but their job is to look out for the interests of labor so that people can work and they can work freely. And they've just released guidance that says, you know, religious people ought to be able to participate in whatever programs the Department of Labor is administrating without any hindrances. So, again, it's a reminder that you don't just elect a person, you elect a government. And uh, we work day in and day out. In fact, I, this, this morning I emailed someone, one of our friends in the White House about an upcoming event. And she emailed me incredibly quickly back. And I'm thinking, man, th this is a special person. She, she, and she made it, by the way, she made an introduction, unsolicited introduction to another administration official and just said very kind words about AACS and the work that we do. And the fact that um, we would be a good partner to, um, to trust in for policy and for feedback on how things impact the private school and the religious school community. And th those are not the type of conversations I've had in previous administrations. And so, so to have somebody that responsive and that uh, friendly to our perspective, I think is a special blessing. And oh, it is. That, and sometimes people might think, Jamison, like what, what, you know, for AACS, where does our, what do our dollars go that we pay membership dues for, you know? And it's, it's, it's anecdotes like that, that, 
how do you quantify that? Right. Yeah. But, but those relationships and the impact that those relationships will have on policy, you know, we may not see some of the fruit of that for five, 10 years down the road, but it's huge. It's huge. Well, and we try uh, to be faithful stewards of those relationships to see relationship for the sake of the relationship itself, not just what it does for us. Correct. Um, and so, but the flip side of that coin is the administration that's currently in power makes that a little bit easier. It's right. easier to have an authentic relationship with them um, in some senses because we share a similar worldview. And sometimes, you know, the Bible instructs us to to care for those that despitefully use us. And so sharing a worldview isn't necessary for us to show somebody care, compassion, love, the love of Christ. But it certainly does make it easier when it's mutual, when you agree about the ends and the means to accomplishing um, the things that you see as virtuous. Yeah, no doubt, no so, doubt. So, yeah, I thought we'd mention that Department of Labor, Labor guidance because those are all things that – um, like you said, are hard to see sometimes the, the mechanisms behind the scenes of some quality people who believe in the First Amendment, who believe in the virtue of um, religious people participating fully in civic society and working hard within the scope of law. You know, our legislature ultimately has to pass laws and our Supreme Court has to um, uphold constitutional principles and originalist principles in order for these things to be preserved. But in the meantime, our government should function as if those things are meaningful and not just ignore them and, and have business as, as usual or make it difficult for people to have to fight every step of the way to get equal recognition because they have sincerely held beliefs. Now, Jameson, I feel like, you know, maybe you're getting ready to announce uh, your run for presidency in 2024. You know, Capola, <laughs> Capola Tiscus 2024, man. What do you think? Hey, you know? Listen, I think it'd be Tiscus and maybe I could be behind the scenes, you know. Man. All right. Yeah. I've got a little experience in the city council. I've got one meeting hey, under my belt. We're, so we're, <laughs> that's right. We, we can make some things yeah. happen. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. Later. Yeah. We, what, what do we say? Uh, uh, we have to initiate an exploratory committee. I there think we that's go. The proper, the proper term. There we go. Hey, speaking of voting, uh, as we kind of wind down the podcast here, um, there has been um, some some proxy voting taking place in the House. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. very interesting. Tell us, give us some perspective on that. Yeah, it was a contentious issue because it breaks a precedent. The, the, each house sets their own rules, and that's an important principle in division of power, separation of power, checks and balances, all of that. Um, but, you know, they say uh, politics corrupts everything, and what we have seen in the house is – and this has, by the way, been true with both parties, and it goes back um, multiple decades now, where like old precedents are just being thrown out really – quickly and without much deliberation and certainly not much bipartisanship about how the rules of the house ought to be conducted. And so they become power plays. Well, something happened recently where um, COVID was used as a, um, a pretext, I would, I would describe it as, uh, in order to institute proxy voting. So in other words, we need, we need to prevent people from getting sick. And so we're going to let one congressman carry votes for other congressmen but what that does is it breaks down a couple of things. It breaks down kind of the face-to-face -face aspect 
that's one of the fundamental principles in our constitution. Like uh, in this, in the the court system, you have the right to face your accuser. And right. there's a reason why, because it's a, a lot harder to look somebody in the eye and say, and, and lie. Um, and so it brings a, a measure of honesty and truthfulness to the proceedings. The same thing's true about deliberation and politics, that if you have to look at your political opponent and you have to meet them eye to eye, it brings our common humanity back into the equation. Mm -hmm. And when you can hide from those, uh, let's just be honest, sometimes those are stressful to have to look somebody in the eye that you disagree with and work out a compromise. Right. Um, But that stress is a good stress because – It's designed to create more balanced and more humane decision-making, more human decision-making. And this uh, new procedure in the House where one congressman can carry votes for others means that those congressmen can hide behind their votes. They don't have to stand up and be counted. They don't have to look somebody else in the eye and say, "Um, no, I'm voting this way because I believe it's the right thing to do. And I can look you at the eye, in the eye in good conscience and tell you this is what I believe the country ought to do. You can just kind of sit at home and let somebody else do that for you. I don't think it's healthy legislative process. I don't, I, I don't think a single Republican voted for it, and some Democrats voted against it. Wow. So the bipartisanship on this rule change Not was fair. on the – you know, opposing side of this, and I think for good reason, for right reasons, than on the floor. Yeah, that's something that's happening. The other big thing is the big spending package that seems to be DOA at the Senate, and the president certainly said he'd veto it. But uh, Speaker Pelosi has said that's the opening salvo on trying to get some of the things that she wants um, for future funding. So like we'll continue eight, to watch it. It was like 1,800 pages. <laughs> Wasn't it? It was huge. Oh, that sounds short. That's that's not too bad. <laughs> oh man, millions and billions, right? What's the yeah. the regulations from that eighteen hundred pages? Well, for for instance, I think the healthcare bill was something on the order of two thousand pages. Obamacare, as it's called, the ACA. The regulations out of ACA were thirty thousand pages. <sighs> if you print them on standard copier paper, I think they stand over six feet tall. The regulations. If you print out all those papers, yeah, wow. it's, it's quite a thing to see. Wow, that's incredible. Well, hey, uh, Jameson, good discussion for today. Thanks for the updates on uh, these things as we as we kind of worked our way through uh, an update on the PPP uh, loan and some of the safe harbor guidance around uh, the good faith certification. The good news is is, is that if your loan uh, is underneath that two million dollar threshold, um, you are being considered as t- having taken that in good faith. So. Uh, that's a good thing for our schools because, again, uh, most likely all of our schools are going to be under that threshold. And then, um, you know, continue to ask questions about the equitable services funds that are available. Um, contact your LEA if you've not done that, if you're interested in participating in those programs, even if you've never done that before. This is this is an okay time to, to begin that process, and there may be some things there that you want to participate in uh, at your school. So please consider yeah. doing that. And Matt, let me jump in with one more thought on that. You know, I, I know for our folks, historically, we have said that what God orders, he pays for. And we said we don't need government to pay for anything. And that's a valid it's, – it's, it's a position that I respect, admire, uphold. But this is not 
quite the same situation as what we usually see. Mm. One of the things I wanted to say earlier and neglected to is that even the Cato Institute, which is they are an extremely uh, capitalistic, free market, libertarian. They, they wear the libertarian label proudly. One of my acquaintances there, Neil McCluskey, is their education policy guy. And he, he recently wrote an article, and this is almost shocking coming from him, saying, listen, this is not the same sort of creature. We, we don't want federal – we still don't want federal involvement in education. We don't think the federal government has any place in education. But this COVID crisis is not your typical stimulus, and it's not your typical federal government sticking their nose in education. And if we don't protect private schools, they will not exist when this crisis is over. That's how strong an argument they're making. And they're not, Neil McCluskey's not a, a compromiser in any way. He's, he's a man that owns his convictions and, and can hold them easily. In fact, I think my last, my last Twitter exchange with him might've been on the, uh, the pomp and circumstance surrounding the state of the union. <laughs> he was not a fan. And that's because he sees government in a very limited role and rightly so. But even more limited to me, I, I, I have a little bit of toleration for some pomp and circumstance right, right. government. I think it, it elevates us to some higher things beyond right. just the, um, the gross uh, material calculations. They, they, they can't, let me put it this way, pomp and circumstance can point us to more noble things. It doesn't always, but, but that's how libertarian they are. That's how rigid they are in their beliefs. And, and with the equitable services and, and the helps for private schools, the tax benefits that are being proposed and, and some of the things we hope to see in other legislation. Um, they're of a different nature than typical government intervention. And so I wanted to make sure I left people with that thought that AACS and other organizations that have conservative liberty values, um, we're not just compromising on these things. We're not changing our position. We're saying the nature of what is happening here with COVID and what the government is requiring of us creates a different dynamic than what we've seen before. Yeah. And we're trying to just present, you know, we've said right. this before, trying to present That's the information, exactly. not trying to say, do this or not do that. Not trying to steer anybody to what they ought to do. We're telling you what you can do and the protections that we're working hard Correct. to maintain if you choose to do it. Correct. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of uh, put a bow on this podcast and wrap it up here. And uh, Jameson, thanks uh, for jumping on. And again, the good work that you're doing, you know, we, we, you told the story about the relationships that some of the relationships that you're able to build there in DC and that's important. And that's why we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to continue to support uh, the work that you're doing. And we just, we want to communicate that to our listeners so that they can kind of grasp, grasp how important it is because it's, again, it's hard to put kind of a, a type of value around that, but those relationships and what comes out of that is helping protect our Liberty and our ability to operate autonomously as uh, Christian schools in, in our great country. So challenging times, interesting times, uh, but we're glad to be able to uh, serve Christian schools during these days. So Jameson, thanks for joining us. Thanks, and man. don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you've not done so yet. I want to thank you for listening and uh, keep up with us on um, social media. We've got Facebook and Twitter going on. Don't forget to check our website. We are still updating things on the the COVID page 
And then we have things coming this summer. We have not stopped planning and preparing for professional development and other things that we've got on, on the agenda. So be sure to check those things out. Hey, you have a great rest of your week and we will see you next time right here on AACS Today. God bless.